Welcome to this podcast from Smyrna Baptist Church in Dinwiddie, Virginia. Smyrna Baptist exists to make disciples for the glory of Jesus Christ, and our prayer is that this podcast would be used to the same end. We hope that you find this content to be meaningful and helpful as you journey on with Christ in the coming days. Point to ponder, May 22nd, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. It seems to me that many people struggle with the rare combination that is the Christian faith. That might sound like a strange statement, but I think the explanation is easy to grasp and resonates with many. Christianity joins two simultaneous realities. First, our faith is grounded in the miraculous. We unite underneath the conviction and confession that someone died on Friday and rose on Sunday. Indeed, the resurrection of Christ is the pillar of our confession, and it marks the most incredible miracle in human history. Jesus set himself apart in many ways, but the fact that his tomb is empty is the most obvious manifestation of the difference between our Lord and everyone else. The Christian life is based on a miraculous event, but it is carried out in seemingly ordinary ways. Many people struggle here. They think that Jesus' miraculous power should be evident each and every day. Often this leads to the mistaken notion that only the truly unexplainable or unique moments are used of God for growth. I can't tell you how many people I've met who are chasing the next high or the next mountaintop experience. These people are convinced that God's supernatural power is always manifest in the extreme or the unique, but this is simply not the case. When we attempt to force the supernatural, nothing but bizarre and unbiblical activity commences. God is capable of the miraculous, but he is more than willing and capable of using the seemingly mundane. Today's text provides a hint of this truth when Paul implores the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. The Christian life is a walk. It's rarely a sprint. It's more of a stroll with the Lord. This means that progress is not as apparent as one might think, but it also means that Christian faithfulness is more measured by putting one spiritual step in front of the other than by making leaps and bounds. Just as your children definitively grow without any momentary explosion, so God's children grow in a mature stature day by day. I suppose my admonition to you is fairly straightforward. Christian brothers and sisters, don't despise the journey. Many times God is moving in you through the mundane and the simple. You might not always know what God is doing. In fact, you will rarely know the extent of what God is doing, but trust that he has ordained certain means of grace through which he is doing something marvelous. Your job is not to force the miraculous. Your job is not to fixate on the extremely bizarre. Your job is to walk with the Lord. Over the next several days, we will examine what it looks like to journey with him in the ways that he has ordained. But today, rest in knowing that he is very present and powerful in the midst of things that might seem typical to those who do not see the world through the eyes of faith. Point to Ponder, May 23rd, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. If yesterday's devotion contained a sufficient charge, today's will begin to unpack how we can be faithful in walking with the Lord. Theologians have called these resources the means of grace. This term is a bit clunky in our 21st century world, but the means of grace is just a phrase that denotes the way or method that God often uses to communicate grace or progress to believers. Stated differently, the means of grace are the ways that God blesses and grows his people most consistently. We are not saying that God only uses these means, but we are saying that God has promised to work through these means, and we can trust him as he is faithful. The first means of grace we will mention is Bible study. 
Our text for today is a famous one in our congregational circle. We mention it often, but typically we fixate on the assertion of verse 16 that all Scripture is, quote, God-breathed. This is a worthy topic of study, but I want to leave it alone today in deference to the other amazing statement in verse 17, that the result of knowing the Scripture is that the man of God may be adequately or thoroughly equipped for every good work. What does Paul mean by good work? The answer seems to be that the apostle has Christian faithfulness and the providence of God on his mind. Paul is not saying that the Bible equips us to change the oil in the car or cook a good meal. Paul is saying that the Bible equips us to be obedient to do all of the kingdom work which we are assigned. God has given us every tool and insight we need to walk before him faithfully, and this means that our study of the word and our understanding of it constitutes the greatest proverbial spiritual tool belt in the world. There is one component of this passage that astounds me and that is found in the sufficiency that Paul ascribes to the Bible. Notice here the apostle does not say some good works or even many good works, but every good work. Paul is boldly asserting that the Bible has enough information and application in its pages to ready us for anything God would call us to complete. There is no challenge and no spiritual battle that cannot be won or met through biblical understanding and application. God has given us an exhaustive weapon for war. We need to unsheath it if we hope to be successful in fighting for his kingdom. Dear believer, your review and study of the word of God today is central to God's purposes in your life. He is equipping you at your dining room table or in your hammock or by your bedside to be used by him in mighty ways. Ironically, one of the reasons why God's activity seems diminished in some people's lives is directly correlated to their unfamiliarity with the very thing God has given us to equip us for every good work. If we neglect the means of equipping, we have no reason to expect fruitfulness in our lives. What you have in the Word of God is a treasure that cannot be overestimated. Do not neglect its study in favor of the bizarre or otherworldly. You have at your fingertips a most supernatural and fitting resource. Point to ponder May 24th, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18. My assumption is that many of you read yesterday's devotion and thought, well, I already know that. We do attempt to emphasize the means of grace often at Smyrna, although we rarely employ the term. Our hope is that you would be intimately acquainted with the promised blessings of Bible study, but also that you would not discount the blessing and responsibility of pouring over the word due to the familiarity of the task. In the same manner, today's text is another reminder to do something that is familiar to the Christian. Paul implores the Ephesians to, quote, pray in the Spirit on all occasions. As we consider how to position ourselves to be a useful and vibrant tool in the hands of the Father, it is imperative that we maintain a fervency in prayer. There are two aspects of this text that need to be addressed if it will benefit us in the way that God intended. First, we need to briefly answer the obvious question, namely, how do we pray, quote, in the Spirit? Some people claim that the phrase is intended to denote some kind of supernatural speech or interaction. Many folks posit that praying in the Spirit means praying in some unknown language or tongue. The problem with this is that Paul says we are to be praying this way, quote, at all times, at the beginning of the verse. Surely, praying in some exotic tongue is not intended to be the norm for believers in our everyday lives. The better approach to answering the question is given to us through basic Bible study and common sense. To live a life that is in the Spirit is to live in a way that is guided by and empowered through the Spirit's presence. In the same way, to pray in the Spirit is to pray in a way that the Spirit informs and catalyzes. The obvious question is, how do I know that the Spirit will inform and empower my prayers? 
The answer is that the Spirit speaks to us through the word he inspired, and he empowers us as we walk and pray in accordance with what he teaches. This means that Bible study, our first means of grace, informs and enlivens prayer, our second means of grace. We pray in the Spirit when we pray things that are in keeping with his will and heart for us. Second, notice the scope of this command. We are to pray, quote, at all times. Does this mean that we should be literally speaking to God every waking moment? No, but it does mean that we are in regular communication with him, and it also means that we communicate through prayer in all seasons. We are to be praying in the good times and the bad, in the seasons of prosperity and the seasons of want. We are to be speaking to God at all times. How often do you communicate with the Lord? How regularly do you hear him speak through his word and respond to him with prayers of faith and obedience? The answer to that question will determine everything about your spiritual vitality and preparedness as a servant of the king. Point to ponder May 25th, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33. This week's sermon was dedicated to charging our high school and college graduates to live faithfully in their new endeavors. The Christian life has some mystery to it, but there are many aspects of living that God has clearly articulated to us. We do not need to wonder what God would have us do or the kinds of people that God would have us most closely associated with. The company we keep has profound influence on us. We have been designed by God to live in community, and this design implies that those we dwell amongst and around will impact our way of life. Paul's warning in our text today is grounded in this truth. The apostle warns the church in Corinth that bad company corrupts good morals. Please note the point is that those who previously possessed a good head on their shoulders are subject to digressing in their moral standing and therefore their relationship with God and their reputation in society due to the company they keep. Some people have attempted to abuse scripture by somehow erroneously claiming that the need for evangelism requires a lifestyle that is immersed with the lost culture. This is an unfortunate and incorrect interpretation of scripture. God has absolutely called us to build relationships with the lost and evangelize even the most depraved, but he has also established a community of faith that exists to provide, amongst other things, our most cherished and deepest friendships and accountability which flows from those relationships. The simple truth is that bad company corrupts good morals, and this is why we should look for company amongst the redeemed. If those who are submerged in sin can bring us down, those who cherish the things of God can hold us up. This means that our job as believers is to pursue godly relationships in the faith that those connections can assist and equip us for the hard work of reaching out to a dying world. Folks, I have seen no weapon more easily and universally wielded by Satan than the weapon of unruly friendships. As our graduates make their way into the next season of life, one of the greatest warnings we can provide is that bad company corrupts good morals. This means we need to be aware of the negative impact others are having, and we must be vigilant in identifying and pursuing godly, wholesome, and like-minded friends for our own encouragement and edification. Graduate, as you go to school or make your way into the workforce, be mindful of who are around you. Frequent the places godly people attend, like churches and campus ministries and wholesome hobbies, and avoid the places the ungodly often visit. The effect that our company has on us is more profound than you know, and our prayer for you is that God would bring solid, wholesome, gospel-centered people into your life for his glory and your good. Point to ponder May 26th, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. So, if you are following the overarching structure of this week of devotions, you will note that there is a definite flow. We could summarize what we've studied thus far in this way. Dedicate yourself to the means of grace and find good friends. Truthfully, these two emphases are enough for substantial growth and protection in the Christian journey. 
You show me a man who is surrounded by godly friends and diligent in pursuing the Lord in prayer and Bible study and church involvement and the like, and I will show you a maturing Christian. However, like a good infomercial, there's always more. Today's passage provides a good and necessary next step on our journey to spiritual maturity. As young men and women graduate, it is imperative that they find godly mentors. If you know me, you know that I absolutely love to read. I believe that reading is fundamental to growth, but reading is not enough. The fact is that we learn much more through observation than most of us realize or care to admit. There is something immensely valuable about receiving godly instruction and watching godly people. It is useful and important to know a more mature person in faith and learn from their example. This was on Paul's mind as he wrote to Titus. The apostle wanted to emphasize the necessity of godly mentors in the life of the church. The fellowship of the saints is full of disciples. Some of them are green, others are growing, and some are incredibly mature, but the way the disciple gets from green to mature is partially by relationship. God has intended that we grow through day-by-day bonds. We see this most clearly in the life of Christ. Jesus spent time and energy investing in men who would grow to be the next generation of leaders in the movement he came to establish. He spent years walking, talking, and illustrating godliness for their observation and instruction. Paul is now imploring Titus to see to it that his church contains the same kind of dynamic. We see here two groups of individuals. It is clear that Paul did not struggle with the idea that there are two genders, nor did he worry about assuming the gender of his congregants. Instead, he clearly articulates that men and women need certain unique lessons in their development. First, young men. Men need to learn sound doctrine, self-control, dignity, love, and steadfastness. All of these qualities are easily taught in discipleship relationships. Paul wanted to make sure that men knew the truth well enough to lead their families in the household of faith. He wanted to ensure that men were dignified, loving towards their families and the community, and immovable in their convictions, and he knew that all of this would only take root in vibrant personal relationships. The application today is quite simple. Do you have such relationships? Older men, do you know sound doctrine enough to teach it to someone else? Have you a working knowledge of the fundamental truths of Christianity? Are you dignified and self-controlled? If not, there's still time, but get to work. If you are, then find someone to journey along with you. You would be amazed at how much ground you can cover riding in the truck, doing everyday activities together, and simply allowing someone else to observe you as you go. Your influence can live far beyond your life in this manner. Younger men, who are you watching? Do you know godly men, and are you consciously putting yourself in a position to be around them? Are you willing to hear what they have to say? Point to Ponder, May 27th, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Today's thought is the related instruction given to the ladies in the church. Pastor Robert mentioned last week the unfortunate narrative and ideas that frame the way our society thinks about what it means to be a successful woman. Many today claim that the pinnacle of womanhood lies in proving that women can do all that men can do. They further proclaim that the height of a woman's achievement is to be realized in the workplace and the boardroom. While we do not deny the immense value that women add to vocational environments, the true value and worth of a woman lies in her innate ability and biological capacity to do that which men cannot. God's design is not for men and women to be exactly the same. God's design is that each sex complements the other. This is quite clear in our passage today as Paul exhorts Titus to lead in such a way that the mature woman in his church will teach the younger women how to be excellent wives and mothers. Notice the list that Paul provides. 
Women are to teach other women to love their husbands and children and to live in a pure manner. Why is this the ground of his teaching? The answer is that God has designed society and the church to function with a solid foundation of the nuclear family. When mothers are healthy and whole, when fathers are providing and serving their families, and when each partner works together to bring up their offspring in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, everything else benefits. We firmly believe that our church enjoys its health in large part because we have so many healthy families. We celebrate the fact that so many women have taken their calling as a mother seriously and that they see in this unique responsibility a marvelous grace of God. Women are not less than because they are raising their kids and loving and serving their husbands. In many ways, they are the very glue that causes all things to stick together as they raise ones who will be the building blocks God uses to grow and perfect His church in the next generation. The point that Paul is implying here has been emphasized already, but it deserves another mention. The apostle is teaching us, once again, that the best way to learn these things is by observation and dialogue in a relationship. It's much easier to catch good mothering than it is to read about it and implement it sight unseen. It is far easier to model your life after another, more mature, godly wife than it is to figure out your own. To our young ladies who are graduating, seek out mature, wise, and godly women who you can learn from. Don't listen to the nonsense that pervades in our society. Take a moment and observe how chaotic and unfruitful the way of the world has proven to be and learn from others' mistakes. Older ladies, don't wait for the less mature to find you. Instead, seek them out and offer the counsel that God has impressed upon your hearts over years of loving and serving by loving and serving your families. Point to Ponder, May 28th, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Dear graduates and other readers, I hope that you accept the advice I've given as a loving attempt to build you up for the task ahead. All believers have been given the job of expanding the kingdom in our own unique spheres of influence. I pray that you take that call seriously and that you understand that kingdom work is challenging and requires diligence. The Christian walk is full of difficulties and challenges. It requires sacrifice and effort. However, there is a lurking danger in our Christian world. I have confronted it several times in ministry, and it usually appears around the time that somebody dares to have a good time. Someone once said that the Pharisees were always angry because somebody somewhere was having fun. Unfortunately, there are many religious people around who embody that spirit. Some among us dare to think that any enjoyment or moment of rest is somehow evil. The thinking is that we always have work to do, therefore we should always be doing work. While this might sound true enough, the underlying assumption misses the mark in two ways. First, when we live with no joy and even fun, we are missing a primary way that we bring God glory. The simple truth is that God is the giver of every good gift. This includes good friends, good food, beautiful nature, wholesome hobbies, and the like. In all of these things, God has given us a gift that is meant to be enjoyed as a means of bringing Him glory. Think about this. How does a parent receive glory for the gift he gives his son? The answer is that he gets glory from seeing his precious child enjoy the present. When a young man opens up the gift in exuberance, dad is honored. In the same way, if we are serious about bringing God glory, we better be serious about enjoying his gifts. Is he glorified or insulted when we avoid every good and precious present he provides? Second, don't miss the way joy, fun, and vigor expand the kingdom. We are supposed to share the gospel, and the gospel is an offense. But the effect of the gospel is meant to be glorious hope and, dare I say, unending happiness. This means that a life that is lived in misery betrays the very message we proclaim. 
In a world full of anxious, uptight, and angry people, a life of joy and fulfillment is not only appealing, it is revolutionary. It strikes me that Peter assumed that people would ask believers about the hope that lies within them, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. But that assumption is grounded in the fact that unbelievers would look at us and see hope. How will they detect such an otherworldly characteristic? Well, they will see hope in our suffering with joy, but they will also see hope with our laughs and zest for life. The point is that living with joy and enjoying the world around you is not antithetical to kingdom work. It is strategic in completing your mission. Find things you enjoy and do them. Laugh with friends, eat good food, love on your family, and don't apologize for having fun. In these ways, God can use you as a testament of His power and promises which sustain and invigorate every day. Oh, dear graduate, I pray you know Jesus deeply, and I pray that your knowledge of Jesus would cause you to grow in your wonder and joy in all that He has given us to savor. Don't let religious people take away the beauty of knowing and communing with your Savior in the middle of a world that He made for His glory and your joy.